Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 22, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. I'd like to dedicate this show to Brandon Maxfield, who died last week at the age of 29 due to complications of a gunshot wound he received accidentally when he was seven. The weapon was a cheap-to-buy gun manufactured by Bryco. Bryco who had who manufactured small uh, Saturday night specials in Irvine, California. The firm suspended corporate responsibility once when it declined to spend the money to improve the gun's unsafe design, then again when it declared bankruptcy after a $24 million judgment was awarded Brandon. The obscenities in the story continue standing in stark contrast to Brandon's purposeful life led. I encourage you to look up Brandon Maxfield it for the whole story. All right, on to the show. This season, UCI Claire Trevor School of the Arts explores the theme, Them. We'll turn the radio stage over to UCI Director Jane Page and actors Emily Daly and Sam Massaro, who next week will present Our Class, a timely and important play by Tadzik Slobodzianik, and we'll give you the... We'll give you the better pronunciations when Jane Page is on here. In the second segment, Citizens Climate Lobby activist Mark Tabert, fresh from visiting congressional offices from both sides of the aisle. So we'll be right back after a short station break all. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guests are UCI director Jane Page and actors Emily Daly and Sam Massaro. Jane Page is a frequent guest on this show, so we'll abbreviate her extensive portfolio by tipping a hat to her most recent productions being Tartuffe, which she directed at the American University in Cairo, Egypt last winter, Enemy of the People presented last spring at UCI, and Julius Caesar set in what is known as near now for the Swine Palace Productions in Baton Rouge this summer. Sam Massaro is in his final year as an acting Masters of Fine Arts candidate. MFA would be the shorthand you might hear later. His work here has included Boing Boing, Man of La Mancha, Clyburn Park, and The Iliad, in addition to a season with New Swan Shakespeare Festival. He hails all the way from Clearwater, Florida. And Emily Daly is a second-year acting graduate student at the University of California, Irvine, that would be right here. She proudly hails from Wisconsin, completed her bachelor's degree from the University of Evansville in southern Indiana. She was last seen on the UCI stage in Anime of the People, returning now to play Rach- Rachelka, I'm not sure if that's how a Polish person would say it, in Jane Page's presentation of Our Class. All have previously been on this program with the many theatric enterprises they've been involved. Welcome back, all of you, to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so It's much. great to be here. So we're going to give Jane the whole mic straight to her. Now she's going to be carrying the... This is one one heavy play, Our Class, written by Tadutz Slobodzianek. He tells the story of a group of Polish and Jewish classmates beginning in 1925 and this play examines the atrocities they suffer as war breaks out and anti-semitism erupts in a series of brutal acts the uh, we'll give you all the details it's uh, the play will start December 1 and the, the run ends on the 4th we'll give you all the details but start pinning that in your calendar while you're listening to our guests today so the seasons theme at Claire Trevor School of the Arts, Jane, is them. Why did you select this play? Because this is the first time you got to really say, this will be the play I'm doing. This play, I first became familiar with when I saw the world premiere in London in when was that? 2009. Okay. And it's been on my list, high on my list since then. It's a fascinating piece of theater for many reasons, not only because of the subject matter and the play spanning from 1925 to the year 2001, tracking 10 people uh, half half Polish Catholics and half Polish Jews through that 
period of time. But it's also fascinating, I think, because it blends a narrative voice, a very active narrative voice engaging the audience directly and reenactments of pieces of scenes that occur in the course of this life. The play, even though it centers on this terrible incident in, in 1941, it is Incident, fact, singular. I think it's a series of incidents. It is, but the incident that most people will be familiar with in relationship to this, uh, this period of history, at least for me, was this incident where all of the Jews were collected in a community and uh, locked into a barn and then burned alive. That incident, in my education, was always uh, attributed to the Nazis. And it has come to light that indeed it was the Polish Catholic citizens, the neighbors of these people, that did that did this event under the watchful eye of the Nazis, certainly. The incident in the play is at the center of the play. So the playwright has crafted a piece of theater that tracks the trajectory of lives before and after. Um, for ab- almost 100 years. Uh, for 80, about 80, 80 years. years. And uh, it's really interesting how, how people change and how people make meaning after having been part of or around an incident like this. And is it made known in the play what triggered that? violent incident i think it does i think the actors can probably speak to that but we'll uh, get to that then okay because <laughs> I, I want to set the the general part here up, up and so we're going to get back to also the theme here of the these were these were communities that were reasonably intimate with one another absolutely and so the the you're going to lay out i don't know if it's an irony or if it's a paradox of violence and intimacy occurring in in two neighborhoods yes and it's always surprising sort of uh you know what choices we make we were working with jeff kopstein who from uh political science who has been amazingly helpful and this is his area of study these sorts of incidents during this period of time of the embedded um anti-semitism that was present and where that came from and how that started at the end of world war one has has been a real education for everyone in the in the room okay Excellent. The playwright, he's a Siberian-born Pole. Yes. And uh, he's now 61. He's still alive, and he's considered to be among Poland's most important dramatists. And at one point in his university life, I mean, this this guy's really tapped into some really interesting stuff. He, he wrote a review for a student newspaper with the pseudonym, and I'm not going to pronounce the name in Polish. It translates into John as John the End of Poland. So um, he was all wandered through with presenting his dramas all over, and he ended up where he started in the town upon which the play is based. Yes, and he read a book called Neighbors, and that's the that's the book that really provoked, which is the unpacking of this entire event, that really provoked him to write the play. And he offers this as a Polish person's atonement for this that a Polish society pulled off. Well, I think he's he's trying to make meaning of how the world operates in, in light of in light of horrible things that people do to one another. Yes. And I'm looking at some of the the press that you've put out and I wanted to split one little hair about the the press piece and you said it didn't this did not happen in a bubble and I was thinking is it a bubble or this did not happen in a vacuum? I'm not sure what the difference is, Claudia. Okay. No, no, <laughs> because because a vacuum in a because vac- we're going to see some vacuums opening up in the current leadership, and in the vacuum is going to be who's ever the strongest in the in the tent in the Oval Office, and so it's sort of va- vacuums are a very dangerous thing. I, I think they're even more dangerous than a bubble is. Bubbles you can pop, and I'm not sure. I'll take it from there. So this is. It's known as Our Class, A Story in 14 Lessons. So it distinguishes class. It's not meant to be a, a double word play. That it, class means where students and teacher-lecture converge. Yes, and I think it's it's interesting that everything is considered a lesson, and the audience, I hope, will know that they are indeed at school as well. And it's been translated into several languages and produced all over the world. So... Then you've told us already about Jeffrey Kopstein. He's been on here. He was on here to talk about Brexit. So he's, the man's <laughs> got his oar in a bunch of different waters there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like for Emily, for the first of the two actors, to talk about your character, Rachelka, and some glimpses into 
how you prepare for your role, and I'll let you both macerate with this too while you're um, answering part of that. Well, how to for us to understand what it's like? You know the end of the play, and you've got to you've got to present a whole different sensibility in the beginning of the play. So let's mm. start though with when we break all this down is how you prepared for your role. And maybe you could describe your character a little bit. There, there's no spoiler alert. Everybody knows what happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I play Rahelka, and she offers a really interesting perspective for many reasons. Uh, one is that there's only three women in the play, so each of them has a really important journey. And it's as being women, I think their stories have to be even louder because <laughs> so often... You know, we don't get that opportunity. So, uh, but Rahelka's uh, dismissed sometimes. Sure, yeah, regularly. Uh, yes. So, uh, I think it's a, a huge responsibility playing <laughs> these women. But she offers an interesting perspective because she is uh, she is she converts. She's a Jewish woman who converts to Catholicism uh, in order to survive, essentially. So, does that conversion happen in the play? Do we see that? Yes, you see. So, it we, the, is that one of the lessons, or is it a side show? It, it takes place during one of the lessons. Uh, My goodness. Well, you see her preparing for the conversion, and then you see the wedding. But so preparing for that, just it's a really unique play and something I've never experienced or been a part of is actually constructing a life for these characters uh, is really challenging and mm-hmm. really interesting because uh, you see how how she starts as a, as, a, as a five-year-old girl and what happens in her life that changes her. And... So it was, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to lie, it was really intimidating, like, stepping into this process, because that is a huge thing to have to grapple with and construct. So in preparation, really, it was just kind of doing as much research as we could about this time and and trying to find as much context and kind of find a way in, and then just owning the importance of the story and as a woman owning the importance of telling the story I think she's an incredibly strong character uh, one of the strongest I've ever played and uh, you know the things she goes through are horrific and um, unimaginable and what she does to simply survive is inspiring and uh, has taught me a lot about myself and about um, taking ownership of the space and taking ownership of who you are. And even when she is forced to completely uproot her life and uproot her identity, um, how she carries on and how she perseveres is uh, a lesson for everyone, (laughs) I think. Well, I've got to hand it to you that... Emily, that your character in Enemy of the People was is a, was a much different character, <laughs> maybe not as even multidimensional. So uh, yeah. your transformation is a, an unbelievable one. So for anybody who, who had the opportunity to see that play. <laughs> so, Sam, mm. your role and your relationship to this play is quite extraordinary. Let's start from where you started. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the, the family or the play? I don't sure. Know which let's, way. let's start with me a little bit okay. before we go down the wormhole of the play. I am of Jewish descent. My father, my father's family comes from Poland and actually comes from this town. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, who just recently passed away. So this is all. Where was all, she? Uh, I'm sorry. What, when she she passed away, she was passed she away in, in March. In the in this area, or she? No, no, no. She's in Florida, where I was, come from. Okay. Oh, that's so, where, so you were reasonably correct. proximate. To her. Okay, correct, good. Correct. So in Florida, but my condolences, Sam. The, thank you, I appreciate it. But her her father, whose name was Sam, who I'm named after. Of course. Wait. His father was in the barn. So my paternal great grand great great grandfather was in the barn that we're talking about. When did you know that? Uh, I've known about this my whole life. So when Jane Page says, we're going to do our class, what, yeah. what occurred to you? What occurred to me was, great, uh, this is a story that needs to be told. This is a story that a lot of people don't know about, and they don't know the truth of this story and how scary it can be for marginal groups to be in a place where they don't have power which I think is really relevant right now. <laughs> we, we are opening that all the way up, so we're going to stay right with the play now. Great, great, Thank great. Um, so I was really excited about this play, and my role in particular is an interesting one because I am playing, for lack of a better word, one of the perpetrators, one of the people that 
is responsible for the burning of the barn. So to come at it from that angle with my history, that's been my challenge is to play someone who humanistically I don't think is very far from me, right? but does something that Crosses has destroyed my life. Yeah, yeah. Sam's life. One moment. Yeah. For those of you who just joined and walked into this <laughs> this <laughs> session, my guests are UCI director Jane Page and actors Emily Daly and Sam Massaro. They're involved in the upcoming productions, December 1 through December 4, of the play Our Class. And Sam Massaro is telling us about his personal connection with this amazing, this atrocious plot. Mm. So... You, Jane decided to, she gave you this role for, was there some, did you, did you beg for this role or did Jane say, no, I think this makes the most sense. How did that, you, you had a relative in one way involved and you're involved in the, on the other side of this equation. How did that worked out? If I can, if I can politely put our conversation on the air, I will say, I will say the role that I longed for was another role who's played by the brilliant Aaron Arroyo, and I tell him this all the time, my grandmother would have been proud to see his work. Wow. Uh, But he says later in the play, my grandmother's name and my great-grandfather's name, and beautifully, might I add. So... What's the name? uh, Sam was my great-grandfather. Oh, it's the first... Diana was correct. First names, okay. Uh, He lists his family, and they're a part of that list, which I think is really cool. That was the role that I was kind of longing for, because... I think my preparation for that role would have been minimal. I could just walk on stage and be me. But somebody wanted you to have an education Correct. on the way to your MFA. Correct, which I think is important. And I know after I was cast, Jane and I talked a lot about the character that I play is named Zygmunt. And if we don't play... How do I say this? If we don't play the villains honestly, then the event loses meaning. If we don't give right. respect to the people that perpetrated the event, then the victims are just victims. So I think that was my way of coming at it. There's, in my opinion, there's nobody in this program. I'm the only Jewish person in the MFA program. Oh, is that right? Oh. Correct. So there's nobody in this program that knows what this guy is capable of, except for me. So I'm glad to be playing him. Okay. Jane, you can... Comment here. You've been watching Please. the transformation <laughs> of these, I don't know, twenty somethings in you know, embracing such a large job here. It's a it's such a complicated play, and yet I am so thrilled mm. to have the cast and the design mm. team that we have together working on this. And yes, it's challenging and most things that are worth doing are challenging. Mm. And I also think uh, for these students, getting to discover how to navigate the form Mm. that the play is and Mm. keeping it authentic has been thrilling to be part of. And I'm so proud of the work that they're doing and so excited to see the audience response. I think it's also important to note that you mentioned that we were only 20-something. The play spans from 1926 to 2000. And the bar, the burning of the barn occurs in 41. My character is 27 when the barn is burned. So the pogrom's in the 20s, but the bar, the actual barn burning is well into the occupation of Poland. <clears throat> Correct. Right? Okay, wow. So my character was 27 when he burned the barn. I'm 26. So okay. the actual event of the play right. isn't very distant from us. Yes. I think that's important. I very. think it's important that we remember that. What, what we're capable of. So there is another player in in a contribution in this and that is the audience Mm. jane can tell us the role of the audience and we are sagging into what happened on friday night in new york city and the reaction that it called on about safe places Mm. and the theater This play, we're producing it in the XMPL, which is an experimental space on campus in the uh, Contemporary Arts Center. It was really important to me that the audience-actor relationship was 
they were all in the room. It's not like you're sitting in your living room, sitting back in a chair, looking up at the stage. In fact, the audience is slightly above Mm -hmm. the stage. And very close. And very close. And everyone in the cast does a lot of direct address right into the eyes of the audience members. Oh my gosh, I know how that works. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's thrilling. Boy. Oh. You won't forget it, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, and... So I want to give you a chance when you're talking about the, the intimacy of this that Edward Albee was quoted recently as I was mentioning New York City where mm-hmm. the cast of Hamilton decided we got a guest in this house and mm-hmm. we're going to make sure the guest knows that we're watching mm. what what Pence is going to be Mike Pence is going to be doing in a very privileged uh, echelons of power mm. and the retort came from our president-elect that the theater is supposed to be a safe place so we have a couple of things going on here we've got what the audience's role is in this and i want you to talk about the kind of creep upward in relevance of this play in today's developments as they're unfolding persistently in these last week two weeks oh okay i think learning cannot happen in a safe place that doesn't mean that lives are at stake but i'm reminded when i hear that remember when (laughs) and this is fitting for our play when the teacher called you to the blackboard to do your first long division problem did you feel safe? Or you guys don't even <laughs> diagram sentences. Exactly. Any of those so, transparent exercises. So when we're talking about this play, it's it's easy for people in a privileged position to feel unsafe because what we're effectively doing is shining light on something that they don't want to acknowledge is there or they don't know is there. Ignorance is even scarier than, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think what does safe mean nobody's gonna die when they come see this play no one's gonna get physically hurt oh but wait but But, a man who works in brands and works in sort of presenting uh, an aesthetic that takes your mind off of what's going on in the financing and all absolutely they want you to feel safe they want you to feel safe so you keep making the same choices that you make and you're not informed but the second that we and I think this is an actor's job, Yes, makes you, we make you uncomfortable or not aware of something that you weren't aware of. Knowledge is uncomfortable. The moment that we make you knowledgeable about something, you learn something. You walk away with something. You've changed as a person. Our job is to change people, and change is scary. Change is not safe. But the outcome of change is a comfortability with enlightenment being scared yeah i think being scared in life is a great thing walking through life a little scared it shows respect jane page i would like for you to address what it's been like to direct this play with the unfolding of events in the the end of the campaign season and the beginning of the vetting of people with immense power Hmm. Because you were talking earlier about the mar- marginal groups without power. Well, we're we're watching a lot of marginal groups are now absolutely quaking with the consequences of this election. So I don't know if there's a direct comment you'd like to make about the increasing relevance of your play in these times. I think uh, in talking with Jeff Kopstein, uh, is is he said when he talked to the whole company day one, is none of us know what we would do right in in these situations he said first of all there's two things to remember nobody knows what they will really do when faced with this circumstance Mm -hmm. which is humbling and also true and don't ever get yourself in a situation where you have to find out (laughs) i mean it's sort of it was sort of surprising to me that that he encouraged us you know to be mindful and to be a humble in a way about not knowing what we would do, mm-hmm. but also we have. A, I mean, I believe, as you know, in artists being citizens and being uh, having a voice. And certainly, historically, lots of theater people have been jailed, in mm. particularly in in this part of in Poland, in Italy, 
when regime oh, they were blacklisted. Changes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Here. that's a risk of being, you know, of exercising free speech and having opinions. But hooray, we have free speech and we have opinions. I also want to say that as we've talked about this play, one of the things that I really admire about the play is that in the end of the play there is a sense of hope Mm -hmm. and one of the things the desmond tutu quote of when there is life there is hope Mm -hmm. and i think uh the thing that's stronger than fear is hope and i think that that's that that is a really important thing for people to take away as they leave this play and as we move forward as Mm. a as a country Holding people accountable is incredibly important, but also hoping and advocating for the kind of change that we want. Mm-hmm. So I want to remind people that this is at the it's at the Experimental Media Performance Lab. That is at the bottom floor of the the newest of the Performing Arts Center. Contemporary Arts Center. If the evening performances are on December one, two, and three. And, and on four. December 3 and 4 will be the 2 p.m. matinees. December 4's the evening performance, or is it the matinee that'll have the, the talk back? There'll be a talk back on the Saturday. On the Saturday. The and third. The, in the evening. At the afternoon. The after, afternoon, mm-hmm. December 3rd. So, and it's very important, regardless of what indication people get about available tickets, do come to the theater it's going to work out we we want to make sure that for the fullest experience every seat is occupied we don't want any patron to miss out on this opportunity we don't know when our class is going to be played again within the nearest 500 miles so mm. we want to make sure people take maximal advantage of mm. this and jane you have a a ritual of some charitable contribution as a part of <coughs> your performances that you you present here. So you want to tell folks a little little bit about that. Thank you for asking. With every show that I direct, I do some kind of of, uh, sharing of the attention of the community. And this year, at this show, we're doing a food drive for the UCI on-campus emergency food pantry. And people can bring non-perishable food items to the theater, and we can collect them there. Or if they want to drop them by the drama office on UCI campus, that's great. And we look forward to their generosity. Well, that's great. So I, I want to congratulate you on an amazing effort. And I'm looking so forward to it, although I, I know it's going to work. I saw a smidgen. I saw a little excerpt online, and four minutes laid me up. So I, I know that uh, we're going to all, we're going to have to be fortified for this, and we have to be ready to be the that last part of the equation the directors mm-hmm. the actors the audience we're mm-hmm. all active in this mm-hmm. so i want to thank you all for coming down in studio here with me and bringing this important work to our absolute attention thank, thank you, you and we'll see you at the theater okay Yay. very good thanks a lot my guests were Jane Page, director at UCI, Emily Daly, and Samasar, who are going to be in our class December 1 through 4 at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. We'll be right back after a short station break with my, uh, my good friend Mark Tabert, who's going to tell us what the Citizens Climate Lobby is up to in the lobbying efforts here uh, in, on the congressional arena. Be right back. Naftali's Dream, and the track is called Blood. Thanks for return- staying with us. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Mark Tabert, local citizen climate lobby activist. Recently returned from travel in Washington, D.C. That was just last week. Mark's been on this show numerous times, and he is the co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. And I want to turn people to the, the website so that they know where they can follow all of the enterprises of the Citizens Climate Lobby because they're very active with 
letter writing, with uh, meetings in local congressional offices and with in the national congressional offices. So we'll make sure SismClimateLobby.org is on your go-to websites. So, Mark, I am struck as always by your optimistic outlook in what has been an area of a constant and mounting urgency upon what now do you base your glimmer of hope well it's interesting that trump has become our number one recruiter claudia since he was elected we have a we have an eight time increase eight times more people coming to our website than before we actually have a an intro phone call every wednesday night at five o'clock and the first the first wednesday after he was elected on a tuesday we had 70 people versus our normal 20. And last Wednesday, we had 200 people join the intro call, a 10 times increase over what we'd seen in the past. So he's been a great recruiter. And the other thing he's done for us, Claudia, is the fact that Congress always had the real power on climate change action. Obama because of appropriations he, or? Well, no, because they can pass legislation and they can, and they can levy taxes. And that's something Obama couldn't do. No president can. So really, right before, you know, thinking Hillary was going to win, our big message before the election results came in was simply ask Congress to do something about climate change. They didn't have to understand the exact policy. They didn't have to know those kind of detail. It was just putting pressure on Congress that we were looking for. And in a sense, that's what we're still looking for. And so my message to people today would be, be nice to Republicans. Be nice to Democrats. Be nice to everybody in Congress because they're the responsible adult in the room right now. That's how I look at it. And I, don't, and I think there's a clear majority of Republicans in the House and Senate that understand climate change is real, caused by us, and we should do something about it. So when Trump does stuff like talk about pulling out of Paris, they know that's wrong. And now they don't have Obama to, Obama to pick on. They can sort of figure... To oppose. To oppose. To be oppositional right. about, yeah. And now they're really sort of saying, oh my gosh, we're going to get out of Paris. And they know that's not right. So it's putting pressure on them. All they need to hear from now is the public. If the public would simply call, especially Republican constituents, would call their, uh, their member of Congress, that that's probably one of the most important things we could be doing right now during this, for, in terms of climate change. So the metric you're using of activity that Citizens Climate Lobby has generated, has, has increased, I want to hold alongside of that metric, the metric of the rolling back of policies that Byron Ebel, that other, if Sarah Palin's going to be running the Department of Interior, people running the Department of Energy, all of those appointments, what they do in policies, what a, a Supreme Court that changes in composition, what it how it may defang the Environmental Protection Agency, which makes the marketplace for carbon taxes and all that, make, makes that what it could be. So I understand the hopefulness about your activity increasing, but there are levers of power, and they seem to be unabashed about pulling those full tilt in a new whole direction. So I, I just, uh, it's a mixed bag. You know, uh, no argument. Some of my optimism comes by the fact that I don't think Donald Trump has ever really thought much about climate change. He's not a typical denier. He's not a, a dyed-in-the-wool denier. He's a guy that never had to mention it during the campaign, so it's able. he's able to... Oh, he to, did mention it. He said it was a hoax. Well, he mentioned to, for, it, but he come, never had to really debate he, it. it. Well, was, he didn't debate anything, really, but some red meat issues, but he didn't debate any policies. There was only one. There was only one question about climate change in Hillary's in the debates with Hillary, and the, and climate change came up only one time in the Republican debates in the very first debate. So again, I'm I'm thinking, and again, everything I do is I have to be based on optimism because That's how right. do you work on the? And just think of the people that started this thing back in two, our group in 2009, when they were going to go to Congress and work on climate change. Um, that was an impossible task back then. We've made a lot of progress. And I think we can now because Donald Trump, let's, let's look at his assets. Let's pretend that we, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. A lot of people voted for him not because of his climate change policies, but because they thought he was a good businessman. And if a good businessman looks at what the options are in terms of dealing with climate change, our solution of fee and dividend is the one they would choose. 
That's what all economists on the left and the right today in Washington are saying to Congress. That's what the people in, you know, that's what they're hearing in Congress. Now, the Heartland Institute and pieces, you know, people like Sarah Palin, in a sense, the more, the more they're in control, the, deep, the deeper the hole is that Trump is digging. That's how I look at it. My question is, is Trump, could Trump be impeached before the election? Before no, well, we're, we can't. We're, we're not going to go there. That whole—that's a whole other kind of a purview, and there—that's not going to happen. But the oversight is just infinite that is required in this transition, and on every day they conduct business. The oversight is essential. So I want for people. We're we're going to talk a bit, a little bit about the offices that you visited, but in the general way of me expressing it, it still is the case that you have all the GOP's congressional staff, they're on board with your message. Well, my best, my best story from going to Washington last week, I, I was there for uh, four days. And I had uh, in the omelet line in the cafeteria the first morning, I spoke to a man who was waiting for his omelet and I said, what do you do? Are you a lobbyist? I always ask everybody, are they a lobbyist? What do they say? Do they say, no, they no, give you, I'm, a, you know, I'm not a lobbyist, I'm a, and then it's the same thing as a lobbyist? No, no, he, he, he wasn't a lobbyist. He was, a, he was a professional staff member for the Foreign Relations Committee, which is a committee headed by Ed Royce. And Ed Royce is They're a up Republican in up in Fullerton area. I've had lunch with Ed before. Right. Ed Royce knows all about fee and dividend carbon taxes. He understands it and he knows it's a problem. But anyway, the, young, the man I talked to, uh, probably 35-ish kind of year old man, uh, he's an aide in a committee. And that's an important job in Washington. And I said to him, I think that the Republicans in the House and Senate are, are my best allies today. I think there's a clear majority of Republicans understand climate change is real and we should do something about it. He, he said wholeheartedly he agreed with me. And that, that's a Republican staffer in Royce's committee. And then I went on to compliment Royce and... I'm trying, we're, we're trying to get Ed Royce to do hearings on climate change solutions in the House. We haven't succeeded in that yet because they feel like they're not the right committee, but we're not giving up on that. Uh, these are not normal times, and maybe there are different committees um, can look at climate change that aren't normally thought of as environmental groups. Because this is truly not an environmental problem. This is an energy problem. This is a human rights problem. This is a problem that touches every part of our life and everybody going forward. So we're, we'll keep working on Mr. Royce. So there's a just a little sort of a technical administrative thing that you've got the tier one and tier three meetings. So I guess tier, tier and you're trying to demonstrate on your um, your website that there's progress made in you're make, moving more of your contacts in Congress, mainly Republicans, into tier one, I guess, is somebody who's more supportive of the carbon tax initiative. Right. Okay, so that's your, your proportions are getting better all the time. Right, and just say a little bit more about that. When we go to, we used to go to Washington just in June for our national conference. Yeah, and I, you were just back now, so you're meeting more often. Well, now we go every November, and we review with Congress what we learn in June. And Good one of you. the and one of the lessons we learned this year, uh, when we went back and we talked to every office, is the fact that two years ago the number of Republicans that listened to us and had interest in what we had to say and weren't. And we're just ignoring what we said. It was a three-to-one ratio. People listened to us versus didn't listen or were or dismissive of us. Last year, in 2015, the ratio had changed to six-to-one. And this year, the ratio was ten-to-one. That's the, that's a measure of movement here. In right. Attentiveness right. and eventual support. Illiteracy. Interest. Literacy. Interest. Interest. Okay. You know, one other interesting fact is that Two years ago, only 4% of the Republicans talked about science in the meetings we have with them. Jeez. So out of 500 meetings with Congress, and this it? is two years ago. Wow. See, uh, and I'll, I'll quote you with one congressman's office. Kevin McCarthy is one of the people we handle out of Orange County because we don't have a chapter in Bakersfield yet. That's his district, and, folks. Yeah. And we were supposed to meet, actually, in 2015 with, uh, I mean, yes, 2015 with Kevin McCarthy himself. Because he's not number he was number two in command. He's still he almost two. was he's number st one. He's still number two. But he bowed two. out. Okay. Right. He's still number two, and he was just reelected to stay in that position. Kevin McCarthy's senior staff in the Capitol office said to us, denial in Congress is clearly overstated by the media. Clearly. Entirely I remember overstated. you told us that before in the last appearance. Yeah. I mean, so I, we need more movement than that. 
So, so for them to now flesh that all out, what it really looks like. So you visited last week Dana Rohrbacher, who represents the coastal sliver from Costa Mesa up to Palos Verdes. Mimi Walters, who is the congresswoman for this district and who does not campaign. I can I ask for interviews. I'll take a surrogate. I'll take, they don't even return my calls. So that's a responsiveness issue that I'll I'll peg here. Ken Calvert, I do I'm apologize, I do not know where Ken Calvert's district is. Paul Cook and we mentioned Kevin McCarthy, we mentioned Ed Royce, and the one Democrat that you met with was Paul Ruiz, the emergency room physician in the Riverside County Congressional District. Well he's well at Riverside County, he's in Palm Springs. Okay. And he, and it covers really the desert all the way out to the Arizona border. So now I know that the power of the citizens climate lobby is the discretion in which you have your meetings but there are a few privileged things you can tell us about your meetings well, to give us hope the, the, or give the us overall, our, the our overall, walking papers the overall tenor of the meetings was the fact that they're all in shock just like we are um they they did not expect trump to win and uh even big supporters for trump like uh dana rohrbacher who's was in the Orange County Register being considered to, for Secretary of State yesterday. I don't think that's the case, but I think Rohrbacher deserves praise if you're, a, if you're a Trump fan because he supported Trump to the bitter end very strongly. Uh, because well, he's been all about immigration a, policy. Because he, well, because he's a Republican more than that even. That's, that was Rohrbacher's line of reasoning. Dana Rohrbacher is a fellow I truly like. He's um, He's got a great sense of humor. He's got a great track record. I disagree with him on most of his policies, but... What do you mean by a great track record? I said, if I said great track record, I meant he doesn't have a great track he record. He does not, because no. I, I heard opposite. Okay. No, he's... No, his, his, it's a sordid he's, record. He's... Um, well, I don't want to... It doesn't help me to be critical no, no, of my I'm, congressman. Yeah. I... Uh, um, I we're, we have a very good relationship with his staff. Uh, we had a medical doctor, uh, emergency room doctor, in a meeting with us this this time in Washington. A guy from Peter That's, Joseph out of San Francisco. Oh, another one. And, and they got it pretty deep into uh, science. Tony DeTora, the chief of staff for uh, for Rohrbacher, is a very learned man. He just doesn't he doesn't buy climate change, but he bases it on a lot of facts and figures. And uh, so Peter and Joseph, you know, that we disagree with, but it's a it's a discussion that's happening, which is good. If you're talking to the other side, you're doing good. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this portion of Ask Leader is local citizen climate lobbyist activist Mark Tabert, fresh from FaceTime in D.C. along the congressional corridors, and I guess I'm not putting. I know you have to keep interacting with them, and you don't want to be in a, an interview malaligning them you want to keep cultivating this relationship but to from my vantage point when i see dana rohrbacher in a public arena i don't see diligence i expect from somebody who's held office that long i don't see the substantive heft and so uh, when the earthquake forum was here i heard a man who wanted to talk about his surfing days and it was so far flung so you have your experience, you have your walk, marching orders, and I have to be intellectually honest with the uh, my listeners on the radio waves is I don't see a there there with a leader of, of, of many, of a veteran proportion. So, let me, Claudia, yes. let me just say, we, we never say anything insincerely to them. In other words, if when I say that Dana Robacher has a good sense of humor, he does. I believe that. Um, when I've seen him talk about the patent office where he spends a lot of his life and thinks that's a real important part of his job, he has as much pa- he has as much passion about defending the little guy in the patent office as I do about climate change. Do we agree on policy? Very rarely. Okay. Well, so anything, can you tell us anything about, now Mimi Walters, the last time you spoke with her before this recent DC meeting, you were appealing to her on a familial and a familial stake, how it could affect her family members or what you know what her concerns are. Where did you move into any other arenas? Well, the thing we said to Mimi Walters, we also said to Ken Calvert. Uh, Ken Calvert's out in Corona. Oh, that's where. Okay. He uh, handles Corona, Temecula, uh, Norco, that area. 
both those members of Congress, both Republicans, joined the Democratic majority to defeat a bill that would have killed funding to, to, for climate change. So we should be complimenting and understanding. And the problem is we don't get that in the news. We don't, we don't hear the good things. We don't hear the rays of hope enough. We're always hearing that Congress is broken. And yet in the climate change arena, we've had two major events in the last year. Chris Gibson, a New York Republican, started the Gibson Resolution. Right. There are 15 signers that say climate change, all Republicans, and the, to the say caucus. climate change is real, caused in part by us. We should do something about it. And there's another group that uh, we were instrumental in getting started, which is called the Climate Solution Caucus. And that's growing. That's Yes, it was, up, it was up Mainly to 20. Republican, right? It was, no, it's, it's half and half. It's, it's half, half, half Republicans, now? half Democrats. They come in just like Noah's Ark, two at a time, one from each party. That's the charter, or that's just that's the way the, it's worked? That's just the, no, that's the way it is. You can't come in without Who a does, partner. Is that did the, um, the chair, the co-chair, Carlos Corbello, set that up? Corbello that's his idea? And, and Ted Deutsch. Ted Deutsch is a Democrat. That's the pair. Right. And the funny thing about it, you talk about politics, the Democratic Party spent a great deal of money to try to beat Carlos Cabello, who's our who's a hero. He's I actually sent him a hundred dollars when I heard that he came out for climate change. He was the first Republican that talked about climate change out loud as being real. And he's in a district that's mostly democratic, but he remained in office. Uh, and I think in part because he covers the Everglades in a portion of Miami. Um, yeah, that's and his district little, is flooding and getting yep. worse and worse all the time. So, we have a, there's two new Democrats in Nevada, so they can, maybe they can pair up with some more Republicans that need a shove, and they can, Jackie Rosen and Rubain Kihuen. In, so, the, in the meetings we had uh, this summer, the biggest question Republicans had, when we, we, the biggest item that we discussed, was this caucus. That was where we got the most okay. questions. They wanted to know more about it. Okay. And now, since the election, You've got more we're getting even pairs. more. Okay. See, I go back to what I said. The responsible adult in the room right now is not Sarah Palin. It's not Donald Trump. It's your Republican and Democratic members of Congress. Not Myron Ebel? You don't see him as being... I mean, to Again, hear him speak is just this, un, as I mentioned in an earlier interview, this sort of unflappable kind of libertarian nonsense about there's no science that really... This is just such a work in progress. It's such a bad habit to watch the news almost anymore because the truth is we're, the, we're a government by the people and we're supposed to be the government. We're supposed to be governing this thing. So we're not supposed to listen to people. We're supposed to be convincing our representatives well, to listen the, to our point of view. How about, is there a, a, a charge with the citizen client lobby to improve coverage? Are you, are you going to media and saying, you know, we didn't hear the climate change question uh, references. There were never. A, there was never a question prepared by a moderator. There was a out of the side of the mouth of a candidate debating a reference to passing reference to climate change, and there was a one constituent uh, in the the citizens' questions in the second of the presidential debates that was sort of an energy policy, but it wasn't climate change. But are you with CCL looking at where media? has got to pull up and do a much better job. Because well, you said I just, read the I came newspapers. Back, I came back from Washington on a Wednesday night, and I had a, a editorial board meeting with the LA Times the following day on Thursday. So my job is to get the editorial board of the LA Times, the Orange County Register, to write pro-fee-and-dividend legislation op-eds. Um, what do they say? I'm not... I'm a small, we're a small group. We can only do so much. And, okay. I, and before we run out of time today, Claudia, I do want to get a, an ad in here to Please invite do. everybody. Citizens Climate Lobby, when I started four years ago, nobody knew what a carbon tax was or solutions. We just, oh my God, that's a problem. What are we going to do? But now we've achieved national recognition. On December the 7th at 10 o'clock at night, the National Geographic will have one of the specials will feature Citizens Climate Lobby and our methodology. So that's a great place. We're going to have three different viewings, one in Brea, one in Mission Viejo, and one in Newport Beach. They'll all be the same. It's not going to be the night of the, it's not going to be 10 o'clock at night. It's going to be 7 o'clock on the 8th of December. And um, if you go to Citizens Climate Lobby, 
Is that the link? Is, oh, right. And then the, it's the Years of Living Dangerously series. Yes. The so show is li- Years of Living Dangerously. Easily. It's an eight-part series. Each show features one movie star or TV star, like David Letterman, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but the, imp- the important thing is that there's a scientist buried in that production. I know Dave, Dave Familietti brought to my attention. is We've got the actor. They're very visible. They're, they're always they're paired with scientists, and the scientists are the one with the real tagline, the real message in there. The 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 uh, actors sort of sort of show a, a utter amazement at how bad things are, but and the scientist has all the data, so it's sort of like well, I, eyes on that part of the production. So that that's coming up on December eighth. People can go to citizensclimatelobby.org and they can get all the particulars for those three right, meetings or, or in go Orange to, County. You know, go to, to our Facebook page, Orange County Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, we actually just picked up the third address in Brea last night, so now we have three confirmed places they'll each hold probably 150 or so people so um, I'm sure we'll have some free lemonade and cookies uh, and it'll be an enjoyable evening the stars of the show that night have a special little introduction where they compliment what we're doing all right okay and because it is it is very very good work and I'm I'm always glad that you're you make yourself available whenever I really need to bring a citizen's dimension and the participation element in here with climate change you always make yourself available mark and anybody were in studio with us you'd see that he comports the exact he's the guy that goes behind those lines too it's just the perfect white mature guy that matches that looks just like them that can really be persuasive in that so that's <laughs> that's uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, packaging so you bring the message and the packaging which is, does the ccl a lot of good love being here claudia thanks so much well thanks for being in that was mark tabbert he is the co-founder of the newport beach chapter of the citizen climate lobby and we'll make sure you get to their their facebook page or the the website so that you can follow that the next meetings what your other takeaways can be thanks for being on the show mark thank you well that is the wrap everybody next week we're going to talk about immigration policy with law school professor jennifer tacon she's one of many law school faculty members stepping up in these post normal times talk with you next week thank you for listening everyone (laughs) 